Hear now the reading of God's inspired word, Psalm 62, starting at verse 1. To the chief musician, to Jedithan, a psalm of David. Truly my soul waiteth upon God, from him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, he is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will ye imagine mischief against a man? Ye shall be slain, all of you. As a bowing wall shall ye be, and as a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his excellency. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Selah. My soul, wait thou only upon God. For my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Surely men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a lie. To be laid in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. Trust not in oppression, and become not vain in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. God hath spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. Also unto thee, O Lord, belongeth mercy, for thou renderest to every man according to his work. Thus far the reading of God's inspired word. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that to thee belongeth mercy, that power belongeth unto God, that you are a God of strength and salvation, even the God of our rock and salvation. Teach us through your word, guide us, to be a people of prayer as we consider the truth of your holy word and promise this evening. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Please be seated. We continue in our series on the Shorter Catechism, and we'll take a little break from our normal pattern of one question per week, and we'll look at this question in several parts concerning the nature of prayer. What is prayer? Here in verse 1, the psalmist says, Truly my soul waiteth upon God. This word wait means to repose, to be silent in contemplation of God. The Septuagint and the Vulgate say that my soul shall be subject to God. I'm not haughty. I'm not restless. I'm not busying myself with my own greatness. I'm reposing and waiting upon God. And why does David say this? From him cometh my salvation. It is because God is the source of our salvation that we wait upon him. Then verse 2. He only is my rock and my salvation. Now this word only is in general contexts a contrast with any other thing that might take the place of whatever he's talking about. So are there other rocks? Well, yes, there are. 
Are there other salvations? Yes, there are. Does he rely on any of those? Does he lean on any of those? No, he says, God only, he only is my rock and my salvation. This is why his soul waited upon God and upon him alone. Now the word rock in this passage can refer to a massive cliff or a fortress, a massive rock. And if you were thinking of building upon anything or hiding yourself somewhere, this would be the sort of place where you would hide. So God is said to be his defense. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. He is a secure height, a retreat, a refuge, a security. And the idea of being moved is like shaking or slipping. I don't have any solidity in my foundation. No, he says, I shall not be greatly moved because God is my rock, because he is my defense. If I'm moved at all, it will not be much, he says. If I totter, if I shake, if I slip, it's only going to be just a little bit. Then he turns to his adversaries in verse 3. How long will ye imagine mischief against a man? They were malicious, mischievous, lawless men. They professed to his face, verse 4 tells us, that they were what? His friends. But what did they do when David was gone? They cursed him. In their hearts, they hated him. They cursed him inwardly. And David compares them to a bowing wall and to a tottering fence. Remember, he's not going to totter much because God is his foundation. What about these men whose foundation is not in God? Well, they're going to be like a tottering fence, he says. David's repose is in the infinite God. What is the repose of these men? In their lawlessness? In their finitude? In their sinfulness? What is their hope? What is their rock or their salvation? It's not God, it's themselves. And so they are like a wall that bows down. Perhaps you've seen these. They call them dry stone. There's no mortar in them to hold all the stones together. So eventually, if you don't do it just right, the wall will fall and bow. It'll come out of its place. It can't stick. It can't stay together. So are his enemies. Then note verse 5. My soul... Wait thou only upon God. Now, notice verse 1. Truly my soul waiteth upon God. Now verse 5. My soul, wait thou only upon God. Do you see the difference? Verse 1, he's describing his condition. This is what happens. My soul waiteth upon God. That's what's happening right now. Now what is he doing in verse 5? He's commanding himself. My soul, wait thou only upon God. So here he changes from what we call the indicative, describing how a thing is in verse 1, to the imperative, commanding a thing to be, namely his own soul. Be silent before God, he tells himself. Do not be haughty or boastful or restless. And this is an urgent commandment to himself. And why should he do this? Why should he only wait upon God? Why should he rest and repose in God alone? For my expectation, here's the reason, is from him. What do I expect of good? What is my hope? And this word expectation can be a rope 
That was the first usage of this term. A rope, when you're down and you need help up, who's going to come and give you some expectation of good? God, he says. My expectation is from him, and therefore I lean and repose upon him alone, nothing else. I expect good from nothing else. Who will draw me up out of this pit and the mire? Who's going to bring me up out of this sin and misery I've gotten myself into? Him alone. He's my expectation. Only he is the source, and therefore, soul, wait thou upon God only. Verse 6. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. Now, do you notice? Look at verse 2, please. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. Now, verse 6. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. Now, notice the end of verse 6. I shall not be moved. Look back at verse 2. How does it end? I shall not be what? Greatly moved. Do you see the difference? One is an absolute negation. I will not be moved at all. That's verse 6. One is a relative negation. Not a lot. It's not going to be a big movement. But notice, what comes in between verses 2 and 6? Well, it's this. My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. What has David done? David has turned from describing his circumstances to commanding his soul. That's very different. To describe how you're doing and to tell yourself what to do are two different things. I note then this doctrine. Our assurance of divine security is tied to our confidence in God's promises. Our assurance of divine security is tied to our confidence in God's promises. When he says that God is my rock and my salvation, when he commands himself to wait upon God for the only expectation of good or help is from him, you know what he's doing there is he's building his confidence in the promise of God. Jesus said his word is like a rock. If you build your house upon that rock, what, it, what will happen to your house when the winds and the waves beat? Well, it will stand. And if you build upon sand, what will happen? Your house will fall. So the assurance of divine security is tied to our confidence in God's promises. He goes from being not moved very much to not being moved at all. And he does so by increasing his confidence in God's promises. In explanation of this, first you have the description of his experience. He thought he would not be greatly moved. And as he commanded his soul to wait upon God due to his infinite power and help, what happened to his assurance? It grew. It improved. He got better. He grew in his confidence in God's promise because he took charge over himself. He wasn't just describing what was going on. He was telling himself what to do. In exhortation then, I say, take control of your soul. 
Command yourself to wait upon God alone. Put your hope fully upon his word of promise, his defense, his saving, his calling you. Take possession of your souls. Command yourself to wait upon God. And what you will find is your assurance will grow. Oh, I'm kind of waiting for God to give me some answer of peace so that I know I won't be greatly moved. No, command yourself as David did. My soul, wait thou only upon God. Why? Because nobody else is going to do me any good. There's no other expectation. There's no other rope that's going to be let down to help me out of the mire. It's only going to be him. And so I must wait upon him and him alone. He is the rock of my salvation, the omnipotent power on which I build my house. He will defend. He will secure. He will cause me not to be moved in the least. Verse 7. In God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Here, note, in God is my salvation and my glory. You'll notice there that the word is is italicized, meaning it's left out. It's a very powerful thing to do when you leave out words in Hebrew. You emphasize those because people have to supply them by their own minds. You make them think a little harder so they can say, God is my hope. God is my salvation and my glory. I am called by God. Do you remember as we've been studying in Romans 8? God predestinated us to be conformed to the image of his son. Then what did he do? He called us. He justified us. He is our salvation. And what is next? He is our glory. He glorified us in his son. So here he says, God is my salvation for the time being and forever. I shall be glorified together with him. He's my salvation. He is my glory. All my hope all my expectation of good is in God himself, whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Where's our hope? Where's our expectation of good? God the Father himself sending his Son, calling us and giving us eternal life. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. How much power did God have for David? How much power did David have for himself? Well, he had none. But his power, his strength, where was it from? God himself. How much power does God have? How much protection can he afford? How much safety can he give? Well, all power, isn't it? He has omnipotence. You can rely upon him and he is the rock of our strength. And when we are assaulted, we go to him. He is our refuge. Not in creatures. As good and as high and great as men might be, as great as the angels in heaven might be, the princes of the people of God, they are nothing compared to the Lord. God is the rock of our strength. God is our refuge. It's all in him. Salvation now and forevermore in glory. All in him. 
And therefore what? Verse 8. Trust in him at all times, ye people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Trust in him when? At all times. Again, this is a command. Rest in him. Rely upon him. Look to him for security, for help and salvation. That's what it means to trust. Lean into him. Put all your eggs in one basket. Completely put all your hopes for any good in his hands. That's it. At all times. Not just sometimes. Not just when you're feeling good and the wind's blowing at your back and the sun is shining and your way is prospering. It's easy to trust in God. What about when he strikes you? What about when he brings you down? What about when he decides you're going to be persecuted or afflicted or to be naked or have peril or sword or the government chases you down? You know, that's happened to the people of God. Sometimes they've prospered. Sometimes they've been trodden underfoot. Both are conditions in Hebrews 11 of faith. How do we respond? Trust in him at all times. Not just in good times, also in bad times, in every circumstance, in all events, in the day, in the night, in each season of the year, every week of the year, at all times. And who's to do this? Ye people. God's holy people. God's nation. Faith endures as the mark of these people. That's why he says, trust in him at all times, ye people. This is what makes you the people of God. You believe in him. You trust in his promises. You lean upon him at all times. Then what? Pour out your heart before him. This word pour out refers to the pouring out of water, the spilling of blood, or it can refer to a libation a drink offering that is poured out as an act of worship. Don't cover your mind and think that somehow if you speak feigned words to God, he's going to listen to that. No. Pour out what? Your heart. What's actually inside of you? What are the things that you desire? What are the things that you grieve over? What are the sins that you've committed? Don't keep them bottled up. Pour them out, he says. Pour out your heart before him. Take the whole content of your inner man and make it all disclosed before the face of God. That's literally what that means. Before him is in front of his face. Here God is and you're trying to hide something from him. Where can you flee from his presence? We sang that in Psalm 139. We'll sing it again. You can't get away from God. You can't go somewhere and say, well, now he can't see me. Pour it out before him, before his face. Coram Deo. John Diodati says in commenting on this, lay open before him with lamentations and prayers all your griefs, cares, and desires with an open heart and disburden yourself thereof upon him. Can you imagine walking around with a massive burden? God says, bring that burden here. Pour it out before me. Give it to me. Let me handle it. 
It matters to God concerning you, Peter says. So give him all your anxious ways. Pour out your hearts before him as a drink offering is poured out. Please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1, a beautiful illustration of this truth. 1 Samuel chapter 1, the godly but barren woman, Hannah. Page 305 of your pew Bibles. This is a woman who pours out her heart before the Lord. We'll read from verses 12 through 16. And it came to pass, as she continued praying before the Lord, notice that, before the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she had been drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. Notice, Hannah has a little bit of sarcastic wit in her, doesn't she? You're drunken, he says. No, I'm not drunken, but what does she say? I'm pouring out my heart before the Lord, my soul. It's like a drink offering. She uses the language of wine to describe her prayers. I'm pouring out her complaint, she says, her grief. She's speaking to God. She's speaking, notice, before the Lord, before the face of the Lord. She's offering up there in the temple where God is worshipped, where the sacrifices were offered, where incense was burned as prayers to God. She pours out her heart before the Lord. Her soul is poured out in God's presence before his face, all her complaints all of her griefs, all of her desires are put out before God. Now, when we pour out fluids like wine, it just kind of evaporates, doesn't it? It just goes away and you have to clean it up or it seeps into whatever's underneath it. But what happens when we pour out our complaint to God? Do you think it just goes away? No, God keeps it, he says, in a bottle. He keeps our tears in a bottle, which is symbolic for the prayers we offer up in grief and repentance. God hears the prayers sincerely offered up, and that's why David says, if you are of the people of faith, if you trust in him at all times, where are you going to go to pour out your heart? You're going to take it online and tell your buddies about it so they can pat you on the back and say, woe is you. Are you going to go to your spouse or your children or your friends or your parents or somebody else and you're going to tell them all your complaints? Why? What can they do for you? That's why he says, trust in him at all time. He is my rock. He is my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. Please turn back to Psalm 62, page 620 of your pew Bibles. Six twenty-one, verse 8. Trust in him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. 
Now it's very interesting in the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says, God is our boethos, that is our helper. He is the one who runs to us when we cry out down in the pit. Remember that? Our expectation of some benefit or good. Who's going to lend you a rope? Who's going to pull you up? God is. That's what boetheos means. God is the one who runs to me when I cry to him, Lord, help me. And what does he do? Help yourself. It's on you. It's all your problem. These are your cares. These are your concerns. I don't care. Is that what God says? You might find that with some so-called friends you have. But God runs to help his people. He casts them a line and says, Come, my child, let me bring you up out of the miry clay. Trust in him. At all times, ye people, pour out your hearts before him, for God is a boethos to you. He will come running to help you in your time of need. He is our patron. He is the one who helps us when we're in our greatest need, when our ship is sinking and we need help. Do you remember Acts 27? When they said, oh no, we're going to crash. We're going to end up on an island. Paul had told them, no, just listen to me and everything will be fine. Nobody will die, but we're going to crash and we need to get to the land. Do you remember? They used helps with the ship. It's the same word. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, tells us that we may come boldly unto God's throne of grace for just such grace to help in time of need. There's our same word. God is a refuge for us. He is our helper. God is the one who comes and throws the line down and says, I will rescue you. I will be your help. I will be your shield. I will be your refuge. This doctrine then. Prayer is only to be offered to the infinite, the true and the living God. Prayer is only to be offered to the infinite, to the true and to the living God. That's the whole argument of this psalm to this point. God is our only rock, our only salvation, the only defense, the only refuge, the only shelter or security. And as he alone is to be waited upon, as he alone is to have this expectation from us of good from him, and as we shall not be moved from his glory and salvation because of his divine power, as he alone is our rock and our strength, our refuge, as we are to trust in him alone at all times as his people of faith, so our hearts are to be poured out before his face. Can you imagine pouring out your heart to an angel? Can you imagine going to a departed saint who's now in glory with Jesus Christ and saying, you know, my soul waits upon God and you too. Because my salvation is from him and also from you. Oh, and he's not only my rock and my salvation. I have other rocks. I have other salvations. Now, sure, God is my defense, and I won't be greatly moved, but 
there are some others out there that I can pour out and trust in at all times. Is that consistent in any way with what this is saying? Is there any way you can make that compatible? Well, the heathens tried. Ah, we got this one. We can kind of play our cards right. We'll align this God and this God, and we'll make them fight against each other, and then while they're not watching, we'll do whatever we want. That's called heathenism. It's where you play the saints and the angels against each other, the mighty ones, the gods, the teraphims. You cause them to kind of help you out, and you pull their strings, and you get what you want. Is that what David says? Is that the sort of God that we're dealing with? When we pour out our hearts, who actually knows the contents of our hearts? Who actually can hear from heaven where the saints and the angels are, where God is? Who actually can hear from that distance and know what we're saying? And know not just what we're saying, but what we don't say, but should say. And who can also hear the spirit of God groaning within us? You think some creature can do that? No. Let us confide then in exhortation in God's promises. Let us trust in his word. Let us lean upon his powerful foundation. That's the rock. Powerful foundation. No movement whatsoever. Christ is the chief cornerstone. And what are we? Living stones. Built upon the solid foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. That's where our faith resides. Let us lean upon Jesus. Let us run to him for grace in time of need. His throne is a throne of grace. And we cry out, Lord, help! And he runs to help us. And our expectation is from him. He drops the line and says, Come up, my son. Come up, my daughter. I've got this. I've got you. I'll bring you out of the muck and the mire of sin and misery. Let us expect good from no other source. You know what leads to bitterness? Where you have expectations of creatures, and guess what? They let you down every single time. It'll happen eventually. Eventually you'll realize, oh, this is a finite being I'm dealing with here. Not only finite, but sinful. They can't meet my expectations. And when men put their hope in creatures, what happens? turns to ash in their mouth. So God says, rely upon me. Look to me, all you ends of the earth. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. Faith expresses itself in prayer. This confident reliance on God expresses itself by praying and pouring out our hearts to the Lord. Note there, verse 9. Just a brief contrast. Surely men of low degree, vanity. And men of high degree, lie. To be laid in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. Note, are there great men in the world? Men of high degree? Men advanced in godliness? Men who are holy like the apostles, martyrs, great men of the faith. You know what God says about them? They're a lie. You can't trust in them. Now, 
But what about the humble people? What about the low people? What about those that God has designed his kingdom for? What about them, the poor of the earth, the meek of the earth? Aren't they great? Vanity. It doesn't matter when you're talking about creatures, when you compare them with God, when you look to the rock of your salvation, and then you compare the saintliest, godliest, holiest man ever, what is he? What is that man? Well, he's a lie. It's as if he's untrue. There is no substance or solidness in him. Wherever you may seek for a refuge, for a rock, for salvation, for anyone to cast you a line, for some enduring good among the creatures, you will find none. And God has designed it that way. So that we will say, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Man in his best estate is a lie. Men of low degrees are vanity. Everyone walks in a vain show. I should just trust in God. I should stop trusting in myself. I should stop trusting in other men. I should just stop trusting in any other creature. They are altogether lighter than vanity. You know what's lighter than vanity? Nothing. Nothing. Vanity is the lightest. It floats upward. What's lighter than that? Well, apparently, if you add all men and all their greatness and all the kingdoms, and you say all the greatest men and all the lowest men, well, they are. They're lighter than that. Altogether lighter than vanity. There is no solid substance. There is no foundation. There is no help. There is no hope. There is only despair when we properly assess the greatest of men, saints, angels, princes, thrones, dominions, all are nothing when set against the backdrop of God's almighty power, his infallible promise of word in his word, and the refuge that he is for us. I note then this doctrine. Creatures are not proper objects of prayer, whether the lowest or the highest. You know, some people pray to the devil, pray to demons. Okay, that's the lowest of the low. They're going to do you any good? Some people pray to saints and angels, the highest, the princes, the exalted ones. Are they going to do you any good? No. Creatures are not proper objects of prayer, nor of faith, whether they're the lowest or the highest. Religious worship and service, which is part of prayer, must only be offered to God. Remember what Jesus said. When, when Satan said, could you just bow down before me? Just one act of religious worship. And then all these things that you see, they're yours. I have been delivered these things. I can give them to you if I want. So just bow and show religious reverence. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only. only shalt thou serve. You know that's not in Deuteronomy. He adds that as the logical conclusion from Deuteronomy. You can't worship anybody else. You can't show religious reverence to anyone or anything else. What is prayer but an act of worship? Prayer is especially an act of worship, a principal part of worship. Why? Because someone must be omnipresent to hear your prayers, right? If you're going to say things silently as Hannah did and expect that God will hear you, 
What does he have to be able to do? Be present in your mind as well as next to you and to hear the words that you say. That's why Eli thought she was drunk. He thought he could hear, but he couldn't. Only God could hear. You must have in prayer an omnipresent being to hear you from heaven, to hear inside of your heart and mind. And this prayer hearer must see into your inner thoughts, search the depths of your heart and your reins, to know what is the mind of the Spirit and his groaning and intercession. Let me ask you, who's got that kind of knowledge? Who's got that kind of power? Who is omnipotent and has the power to answer our prayers? So then, God being the only qualified object of prayer, we must offer our prayers to him alone. He is our confidence, our helper, our refuge, our power, our glory and salvation. And therefore we trust in him at all times, O people, and pour out our hearts before him. In exhortation, let us then repent of trusting in man. Let us trust in the Lord. Let us pray to God, having our hope set upon his word. Not the promises, the vanity, the useless foundations that creatures provide. Our faith has no bed to sleep upon, but that of omnipotence. And thus far the explanation of Psalm 62 concerning the object of our prayers, even God only.